Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you. I didn't. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello listeners and welcome back to Real Talk. This episode I'm bringing you a real treat of a chat with engineer Roma Agrawal. It was recorded in front of a lovely live audience at the Harrison Pub in London's King's Cross. And I started by asking Roma what her job as a structural engineer involves. So I create the skeletons for structures. I um, basically make sure they stand up. So the fact that this isn't falling in on our heads tonight is because a structural engineer has made sure that it is strong enough. That's good because we're in the basement. So the whole we are in the basement. <laughs> And that's, that's another good point. The reason it's not leaking, which basements do a lot in London, is also because of structural engineer. Nice. So, so I spent six years of my career working on the shard, which we can talk about. Um, worked in steel and concrete. I like concrete as well. So those are my two favourites. But I made you choose, didn't I? <laughs> you did. You did. Um, I, I talk about in my book how I stroke concrete. Like I, I just kind of you'll find me on the side of the road, kind of against a concrete wall, just. Um, I don't do that with steel. Why not? Because um, it's my second favourite. You know? <gasps> How do we feel about hearing about Roma's second favourite material? <laughs> well, it, all it'll do is just reinforce how much I love concrete. Okay. I like that you use the yeah, word reinforce <laughs> with reference to both concrete and steel. That was very clever. Let's promise one packet of Maltesers to anyone with the best steel pun tonight in the Ooh. questions. So there's a little That's challenge for you. Mm. Okay. We'll start we'll, there. We'll keep it there. <laughs> Amazing. So you're a structural engineer. You work in London. Um, and maybe the best thing for us to do, first of all, is to actually define what is your second favourite material, <laughs> i.e. what is steel? Right, so um, steel is a metal. Uh, if you want to define what a metal is... I'll probably have to ask you to answer that question. <laughs> um, my understanding is that they're made up of little crystals. You've got nice, regular, 
setting out um, like grids of atoms and molecules that come together, which gives it really quite specific properties. Um, and we can talk about some of those properties because that's really what makes steel one of the most used building materials in the world. But but that's where I would start. It's a metal. It's got crystals. The crystals are opaque. And it's basically, it's a cousin of iron. And we can talk about how you get from iron to steel as well. Yeah, OK. Well, let's start there then. How do we make mm. steel? So um, so steel has been around for a while. I mean, do, do you want to kind of delve into... Yeah, let's start, let's start chronologically from the beginning. Chronologically. Yeah. So um, we had the Iron Age, as, as we know. Heard of that. We understand that it started in India and Anatolia, which is now Turkey. And I think it was around 2400 BC that they were finding evidence of people from these civilizations using this material. And they knew how to kind of to forge it, to heat it up, to shape it. They made vessels out of it, but they didn't really use it in any large way in the, in the kind of the sense that we use now. And the reason is because iron is actually quite a soft material, relatively speaking. So I describe it a little bit like, I mean, I grew up in New York and I, it was the 80s and I had cereal full of marshmallows for breakfast. I mean, that was perfectly acceptable in the 80s. Um, so the big chocolate chip cookies, which are quite soft and you kind of you bend them, but they don't break straight away. I've, iron's a bit like that. So it's quite ductile. You can kind of move it around and it stretches and it deforms. And so that's not great for structures, unsurprisingly, although the Eiffel Tower is made of it. No way. It is. It is. Um, so that, that's that's kind of wrought iron or, or the traditional iron that you get. And then if we went to cast iron, which kind of pots and pans are often made of, and they're a bit more like um, Italian biscotti. So you snap it and it just breaks. So, um, so a few biscuit analogies there. Love it. And then cast iron, again, is not that great for structures because structures move. They're being hit and buffeted by gravity, by the wind, um, by earthquakes in some parts of the world. And we need to make sure that it's not so brittle that things just snap and fail. So that's not really great. Now, these, these are all forms of iron with different amounts of carbon in it. And steel is basically a different form of iron with a specific amount of carbon in it. And that's around 0.2%. So... It's these carbon atoms essentially go and jam themselves into this matrix of atoms and molecules and, and just give it enough rigidity. Um, and now I'm thinking of Maltesers. Yeah, let's do the demos. Yeah. So this demo really is all about why steel is stronger than just iron. So what is it about adding those little carbon atoms in there? 0.2%, did you say? It's about that. So iron coming out of the ground can have a, a varying amount of carbon in it as an impurity. So sometimes there's too much, sometimes there's too little. And one of the biggest problems and the reasons why we didn't really have steel until the 1800s was because um, engineers and scientists didn't really know how to take out or put back in the right amount of carbon and they didn't really know what that right amount of carbon was so so it was quite a kind of complicated thing so if we assume for now that we're starting with pure iron mm -hmm. i.e maltesers and then we can take it from there okay great so i have a black tray here and i've got one open packet of maltesers which anna very cheekily opened but she hasn't eaten too many of them 
So we're going to kind of pour those out, and I think we can do with one more packet. Okay. I thought you might say that. I bought four. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So we've got this kind of this tray of Maltesers. Um, I'm not sure if everyone can see very clearly, but let's just move some of this. I'll move the carrots. Though. Do you want to get the raisins ready for me as well? Great. So, so we've got this tray, and and the idea is that these Maltesers represent the iron atoms, and because of what I described to you, that they sit in this sort of matrix or grid, they can roll over each other um, quite easily. So whereas materials like plastic are kind of long, fibrous threads which are all tangled up, which gives it that solidity, uh, metals like iron are actually quite um, movable in that sense. So if I roll my hands over this, you can see that they just, they just sort of roll around quite easily and move around. And um, Anna, uh, stop stealing the Maltesers. Um, also, my hands may not be massively clean. I wouldn't... Anyway. Um, so, I think the pub tray is worse than your hands. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be so sure. <laughs> so, so this gives metal its quite unique property of, of being quite you know, malleable and ductile and all these, these other things. So what we're going to do now is mix some of these raisins um, with the Maltesers on the tray. So if you just kind of dot them around... 0.2%. Yeah, well... Yeah. <laughs> I think we could do maybe a couple more. Very scientific moment. <laughs> right, so we've got now an amount of raisins <laughs> mixed in with the Maltesers. And, and what happens now is if when you try and roll it around, you find that it's actually not quite as easy. They're sort of getting jammed up by the raisins. So the raisins are kind of squashing in between them and just stopping them from moving around as much. And that's what the carbon does to the iron. It basically goes into the matrix of these, um, of these atoms, jams it up a bit and gives it a bit more rigidity in comparison to its pure form. Okay, so it's the little tiny carbony raisins <laughs> that, are, that are jamming up and stopping those atoms in the crystals from really flowing around, yeah. which means that the material itself is stronger. It doesn't bend right. as easily. Yeah, so, so the bending part um, is, is actually a really good property of steel. And, and you know, I guess we can come on to why steel is, is such a good practical material for structures in a minute. Okay, cool. Um, so you mentioned that we've been using steel for a while, but really it only got going in the sort of 1800s or so. Um, why did it take us so long if the Iron Age was whenever the Iron Age was? Yeah, a, a few thousand years a ago. A few thousand years I, ago. I don't know exactly when. Um, so I, I love this story from, from Delhi. So I went there as a teenager and you go into what's called the Qutb complex and it's full of this amazing Islamic architecture. They've got the Qutb Minar, which is one of the tallest kind of freestanding brick towers in the country. And there's all these fantastic things. And, you know, everyone gets really super, super excited about these really fancy, gorgeous, you know, embellished bits of architecture around there. Um, but no, I was really excited. There's a skinny black column that just sits there in the middle of a courtyard somewhere. And the reason I got really excited by this is because that predates the other architecture, the other buildings in the Qutb complex by quite a way. So they think it was built in around 400 AD. And 
the belief is that it was an offering to Lord Vishnu from the Gupta dynasty um, of the time. And once upon a time, uh, the Garuda, which is an eagle, like a, a half eagle, half man mythical creature, sat on top of it. And that was the vehicle that Lord Vishnu um, used to transport himself around the heavens and on earth and so on. So that's the kind of the, 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 kind of the history, the myth- mythology behind this column. Now, that the Garuda at the top is now gone. And so literally all you have is this plain, dark grey, skinny column just sitting there. But it's super cool because it's made from iron. And the formula of that iron was somehow quite special. So the iron, the way that it used to be extracted and worked and so on, meant it was quite pure, but it had quite a lot of phosphorus content in it. So this column has stood um, in various parts of India for one and a half thousand years, but it hasn't rusted. And the reason that happened, so what normally happens is that you get the moisture and the oxygen in the air reacting with the iron and it creates rust. And that would have happened at the beginning. But then because of the very dry climate in Delhi, um, the phosphorus somehow kind of got drawn to the surface and created a thin film um, between the rust and the untarnished iron. And, And it just stopped it from rusting any further. So it's really, really fascinating to me that, you know, structures made out of this incredible material have lasted for so long. And in fact, um, Pliny the Elder from Roman times knew about Indian iron at the time and used to write about it. But I'm told or or what you read is that the Indians never shared their formula for iron with the Romans or the Egyptians who were quite interested in what that formula was. (laughs) So then if we fast forward to the industrial age, to the 1800s, um, I think we're going up towards Sheffield now, the north. And... um, (laughs) There, there was there was a young a young uh, cheeky little chap called Henry Henry Bessemer, and his father used to run a factory, and um, which was to do with metal press and and so on. And he used to lock up the factory because he didn't want his competitors to discover its secrets. And he thought his son should be off studying or whatever. Um, but Henry used to actually break into his father's factory to try and discover its secrets. So he finally gave up and said, fine, I'll train you up. I'll explain to you how metals work and so on. And Henry was really, really skilled at working with metals. So age 17, they moved to London. And I just love his tenacity. He just decided age 17, comes to London, I am going to be an inventor. And that's what he spent his time doing was tinkering around, creating stuff. And he did create quite a lot of stuff. But, but the interesting part of his story is that he created a bullet which could carry a lot more gunpowder than the guns they had at the time. So he took this, um, his new invention to the British Army and the British Army just said, yeah, no, we're not interested. And then he went to the French Army and luckily we were actually fighting on the same side of the Crimean War at the time. (laughs) And um, the army was interested and said, you know, we like this idea. You've given us a lot more firepower. However, the guns that we're using are far too brittle. And so if we fire this gun, the guns will probably just explode in our face. And the reason was that they were using cast iron, a.k.a. the Italian biscottis, Mm. which are quite brittle. So he said, fine, I'll go away and look at the material that the guns are made of and see how we can try and improve that. So the way they used to make steel at the time was that they would try and heat up the iron as much as they could using coal or gas um, in an open furnace. So it's a bit like boiling a pot of water on a hob. 
And he had this kind of workshop in his back garden, which I think was in Highgate. And he basically one day got a bit fed up because some of the pieces of iron he had on the top shelves of his furnace, they weren't really melting. So he just blew hot air into the furnace. And then what he suddenly realized was that the pieces of metal at the top of the furnace were much purer than the ones lower down. So he said, okay, I'm going to close the furnace. I'm going to switch off the heat, as it were, switch off the hob, and I'm just going to pass hot air through my furnace. And he did that. And he first, you know, the first time he tried that, you know, he just got a few sparks. It's like, oh, okay, so the bit of the silica and the phosphorus and other bits and pieces are starting to burn off. That makes sense. But then suddenly he started getting explosions inside the furnace and then bits of molten metal started kind of flinging themselves all around <laughs> his his workshop. And he had to probably kind of jump back and wait for this to calm down. It took about 10 minutes. And then he went back and looked at his furnace and realized that what was left in his furnace was pure iron. Mm. So what he'd managed to do was to burn away the impurities, particularly the carbon, And that was because he created an exothermic reaction. So he's passing hot air in, the oxygen reacts with the carbon, and that was an exothermic reaction, which means it was releasing a lot of heat. And this heated up the metal, which created more of a chemical reaction, which heated it up even more. And so he could get the iron much hotter than was possible just by trying to kind of boil it, as it were. Um, and, And that is called the Bessemer process. Very egotistically named. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bessemer was actually like quite an interesting, well, I think quite a stereotypical Victorian inventor, really. Um, he invented over a hundred different things that ended up getting patented. Um, and one of these is his ship. Do you remember right? this? No, you're going to have so, to tell me about that. Um, he invented this ship, which um, basically he suffered from terrible seasickness. So what he did was invented a ship that had a little cabin in it um, that rotated with the roll of the ship so that the cabin remained stationary and the ship would rotate with the sea around it. Um, the funny thing about that is that the it only worked because a little person had to watch a spirit level and every time it moved, they'd have to like <laughs> quickly do something <laughs> to make it go the other way. So they, they did um, a kind of maiden voyage from Dover to Calais <laughs> And then they crashed it into the harbour at Calais, um, fixed it up again, um, and then a few paying people went on board, but the chain, the sort of little cabin itself was broken, and so it was just actually a ship <laughs> <laughs> that went across again, and then they crashed it again, and he lost loads of money on it, and it was really embarrassing. But he had some other more successful <laughs> things. Well, he, he nearly very well embarrassed himself with his whole steel thing because once he discovered how to do all of this he sold off patents to manufacturers all over the UK and when they tried to recreate the process they failed and so they all demanded their money back which to be fair to him he paid and that was nearly his undoing and he couldn't understand why something that he'd managed to do so successfully they couldn't do it. Hello this is Anna from the future. Bessemer's technique worked for him because he used low phosphorus iron in a brick-lined kiln. Others tried also using a brick-lined kiln, but their iron had higher phosphorus content and it didn't work. Turns out you need a lime kiln to make steel out of high phosphorus iron. 
And so somehow the chemistry of this just didn't really work. But he basically worked out what the right combination was and then kind of resold his patent. And it became hugely, hugely successful. And he cut down the price of the manufacture of steel by six times, which was, you know, he's completely smashed the price barrier. And then suddenly it's become cheaper than iron and it's much more long wearing than iron. So the railways were completely revolutionized because they could have faster trains, heavier trains and so on. And then it also led to, you know, that's that's when skyscrapers started being built as well. Because the materials could suddenly now be strong enough and uh, not brittle enough to be able to hold up big structures like skyscrapers. So you mentioned the Eiffel Tower afterwards. That's made from, is it wrought iron? That's wrought iron, yeah. Um, So presumably that was before the Bessemer process really took off. It could have been about the same time, but again, wrought iron was a tried and tested material in some senses, so they knew what its limitations were. And obviously that, first of all, it was meant to be a temporary structure. And if it moves, it wasn't so much of a problem because it didn't have you know, glass or stone cladding mm. on it, so it could move a bit more. So the parameters of the design were were very, very different. And also the amount of material you would put into a wrought iron building would probably be higher than steel, if, you know, just to, to keep the safety. So, mm. so all of these things were kind of developing in parallel. And I guess they needed a bit more confidence. So as it does, you know, the new materials take a bit of time to to really start to roll out. Yeah. So you mentioned there a few of the factors that you have to take into account when you're building the Eiffel Tower, for Mm. example, or other structures. Um, In your book, you write about one of your first projects as an engineer, which is the Northumbria footbridge. Um, Can you talk a bit about the the type of decisions that you have to make as an engineer when you're working with steel for structures like a bridge? Yeah, so I started that project on my 22nd birthday. So Aww. I was I was super excited. And and all I when I told my boss it was my birthday, all I got was well why didn't you bring cake? <laughs> Which was just was charming Reasonable. on my on my first day. Not happy birthday. Um so the initial premise is there's two bits of land that need to be joined up. You then start to think, well what are the levels of the existing, you know, land you're trying to join up? You start thinking about the trains and the cars that are traveling on, on the highway and the track below it. You try and work out, well, actually, the amount of headspace we need on this road is quite a lot, which means that the depth of the structure we can use on the deck is quite restricted. So if you were just to support you know, a simple a kind of beam bridge across these two pieces of land, then it would have just been too deep whether made from steel or concrete, um, to allow the big trucks to go past on the motorway. So now you start thinking about, well, I need to support this from above. And cables are a great way to do that. Now, the reason um, steel does so well in cables is because it takes tension really well. So what do I mean by that? So, So this is where I'm afraid steel trumps concrete. Because concrete... If you try and flex it, and, and we can get we can use the carrots for this demonstration in a second. Um, basically, if you pull concrete apart, it cracks quite easily. But steel, because of the way the bonds work in the material, it's actually it can get stretched. It's a bit more like a rubber band. So I'm going to open this packet of carrots at this point. Now, my task was to buy a bag of carrots of all different shapes and sizes. 
So I feel Which like I have succeeded. succeeded. Yeah. yeah. They weren't all like that though. I had to go through all of the bags of carrots and things. <laughs> <laughs> what did I you like do the today? Dedication. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> See, look how different that one is. They yeah. they are very different. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I've got a range of, of I've, I've taken three carrots out of this bag because you never know, some some people in the audience might prefer to have carrots as an after-dinner snack to Maybe. the Maltesers, potentially. Um, so I need both my hands to okay. do this. So if you imagine that that's a bridge and it's spanning across a piece of land... Um, and then you're going to load it up. So there's people going to stand on it. Uh, this was a footbridge, so we didn't have any vehicular loading on it, luckily. So basically it starts to flex. So and now steel does that. So yeah, we're bending the carrot and it's kind of flexing a bit. And steel is quite good at doing that because you, you're basically compressing the top of the carrot and you're stretching out the bottom. But what concrete <gasps> would essentially do, and we're going to see if this works now, is... You, I'm bending it and I'm putting a bit more force into it this time. And you can see the kind of the bottom of the carrot is really starting to bend now. And now it's just snapped. And, and concrete is very brittle. Now, the reason I had different types of carrots was just to demonstrate. So I had quite, quite a large diameter carrot for the first one. And then this, we've got a, little, a skinny little carrot here. And then what you'll see when I bend this is that it can flex a lot more than the large diameter carrot did. Mm. And so it's harder to actually make it snap. So these are the kind of calculations that we do as engineers is to understand how much force is going to go in through our beam. Um, if we make it out of concrete, what are the tension forces you're going to get at the base? So we reinforce it with steel. Um, but the reason, you know, like which is where we started, the reason why steel is really good as cables is because you pull it and it has a really, really good capacity to carry weight. So the upshot was that this was a cable-stayed footbridge, which means there's a big, um, not quite vertical column. Off the column, there are three pairs of cables that come up and support that deck. And the deck itself is, is quite slim, so it's only half a meter deep. And then we had three further pairs of cables that kind of balanced out the weight of the deck and that were anchored into the ground 
So that that was a really, really interesting thing to think about because if you think about the forces in cables as well, um, the Great North Run happens underneath the bridge. So they shut the motorway down. You've got all these these runners. I, you know, I am not a runner. I never understand, <laughs> especially in the cold, why people would go out for a run, but they do. Um, some of us even swim the channel, apparently. Um, so... The, you, you, you know, the runners are running below the bridge. So if you imagine the spectators on top of the bridge, they're going to be standing on one half of the bridge to watch the runners approach. And then they might swap to the other side mm. of the bridge to watch the runners run away. And this is going to load up the bridge quite unevenly. And it's going to pull the cable and put different amounts of tension into this cable. So one of the most complicated pieces of analysis I had to do was to work out in different configurations of loading on that bridge how much force is actually going into those cables. That's so interesting. So how many thin carrots you need to hold up marathon fans? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Um, Was there anything else that you had to take into account? Like, um, I think in the book you write about sort of resonance and the problems Mm. of people... Walking, how dare they walk over a footbridge? <laughs> <laughs> how do you deal with people using the bridge? I know, I mean, structures would be so much easier to design if people didn't interact with them. Mm. But, um, you know, such is life. So, uh, yes, yeah, so resonance is a really, really interesting phenomenon in, in light footbridges. So, so here is where concrete scores over steel, okay? <laughs> if you build a bridge out of concrete, they tend to be much heavier because of the sheer amount of material that needs to go into it. So in order to make something vibrate, it's much easier the lighter that thing is. So um, a heavy concrete bridge is harder to make vibrate than a light steel bridge. So when you know that you're doing quite a lightweight steel structure, that is something you need to think about. Um, We all know about the Millennium Bridge. I I, I sometimes do this to audiences that weren't even born when the Millennium Bridge happened, and that just makes me feel really old. (laughs) But it wobbled. We called it the Wobbly Bridge, didn't we? And what what basically happens is that when we're walking, you know, we're taking steps, and we do that a certain number of steps per second, which is our frequency of walking. And if the natural frequency of the bridge matches the natural frequency of our walking, then you basically um, create bigger vibrations than you would otherwise and maybe to explain what natural frequency is a little bit Mm. just with a pendulum just imagine you've got you know a mass at the bottom of a bit of string and you kind of swing it 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 just swings at a very at its own pace and that's its natural frequency so every single object has got its own natural frequency and the trick is what we have to do as engineers is to try and calculate what the natural frequency of a bridges, which is much more complicated than counting how many times a pendulum swings in a second. And then we need to, we know what frequencies humans walk at, and we need to make sure that those two things don't match. And do they often, presumably they are often quite close. They can be. Yeah. And so what's interesting about the Millennium Bridge is that the, the vertical pace of, you know, the vertical frequency of walking was checked and was fine. But because this was such a slender bridge, um, and just to be clear, that was not one of my projects, <laughs> um, there, there's also a slight sideways force that we exert on the ground as we're walking. Okay. And it, that's, that was its undoing. So the force created by the sideways movement of our walking matched the natural frequency of the Millennium Bridge 
in its sideways vibration mode and that's what set it off basically oh no so how did they solve that problem well they they spent a lot of money <laughs> putting <laughs> um giant dampers below the bridge they're a bit like car pistons in a sense mm. and they they basically absorb movement and stop you know the, the actual bridge from moving because they kind of absorb all that energy from it yeah brilliant so um another really interesting thing with bridges is that we have to design for them to move so the footbridge that i worked on in newcastle is about 40 meters long and you design for a big temperature range so in the winter the steel might get to something like minus 10 or minus 15 degrees centigrade and in the summer it might go to like plus 35 to 40 degrees so so clearly we know that newcastle doesn't go up to 40 degrees in the summer <laughs> so we're thinking more about the temperature of the actual steel itself because it absorbs it um and again you might be able to explain better than me why metals get so hot I could if you want me to <laughs> you want me to yeah okay well it's it's similar to why metals are conductive to electricity um so it's basically to do with um the fact that in a in a metal uh crystal structure you have all these atoms that are lined up in this sort of neat crystals that we've talked about already um and their their electrons are delocalized which means that they can just sort of swim around and they're not tied to one particular atom and that's why we have electricity because those electrons can move from one place to the other and create an electric current well those electrons can also um be involved in the transfer of heat I well I, I didn't know about that so there you go. so th there you go so I've learned something tonight as well which is great um so yeah so the steel gets hotter than the air and therefore you you get this kind of temperature differential of about 50 degrees say that you need to design for and steel expands and contracts by 12 times 10 to the minus 6 of a millimeter per degree per so per millimeter per degree okay so if you had a 40 meter long bridge yeah um that translates to a movement of about circa roughly <laughs> Twenty um, <laughs> something millimeters. Whoa, that's masses. Which which is loads, right? So it kind of adds up over the length of a bridge. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So so we so if you basically just kind of tied the bridge at its two ends and it's doing this expansion contraction thing, um, you're basically internalizing the forces and you're causing it. You, it might bow and then it will kind of come down again, and that's not really good for the structure. So we actually design f um, one end of it. at least the northumbria university bridge has one end which has a movement joint and it sits on these giant either rubber pads which which allow a bit of flex or on bearings which which are kind of two bits of steel plate which essentially can slide on top of each other and it allows that little bit of movement so if you're driving in your car over a bridge and you hear that kind of little dum dum sounds what you're doing is you're driving over the movement joints which have been put in to allow for that expansion or contraction of the bridge um and concrete so now this is where things get interesting right concrete expands and contracts by almost exactly the same amount as steel that's convenient it is pretty convenient <laughs> and that is why <laughs> reinforced concrete can exist ah. because if steel and concrete expanded and contracted by different amounts it would rip each other apart mm. um and so that was almost also discovered by chance by a gardener 
who was what? trying to make his pot stronger in France. I think you need to tell us this story. <laughs> so you see, we're getting drawn into concrete now. Um, so, so there was a, a gardener called uh, Joseph Monnier, and he was fed up of his pots cracking all over the place. And so he decided just to add a metal mesh into his concrete pots and see what happened. And he didn't really expect that that would work, but it did. And, you know, the, the reason it, the, the biggest reason it could have failed was the fact that the steel would have just created loads of weaknesses, you know, within this concrete pot. But actually concrete binds really well to steel. And the second reason being the one we just discussed, which is that, you know, if the temperature differential didn't work, then again, it would just rip itself up and, mm. and crack and so on. Um, and that's where reinforced concrete was originally um, sort of discovered slash invented. Nice. Did this French gardener get the credit for it? Um, I think he showed this at, at like some fairs and things. And then there was another engineer that saw it and understood its applications to civil engineering, to, you know, to roads, mm. to pipes, to buildings and so on. And then it just re- kind of blew up from there. Awesome. Um, so you were talking as well about being one of the engineers responsible for the design of the Shard, which is London's tallest building. And is it still the tallest in Europe? Western Europe. Western Europe. <laughs> so it's still pretty impressive. Um, what exactly is the theory behind the different materials used in mm. the Shard? Okay, so when we design office buildings, we tend to use steel. So steel beams are quite deep. So I'm, I'm looking at the kind of the big diameter carrot again. Um, you want to achieve big, long spans because offices tend to be quite open plan. Uh, you, you're not putting up walls. You want to make it nice and open. And then they have a lot of services. And that means the air conditioning ducts, the water pipes, the amount of electrical wires to get everyone on Wi-Fi or whatever. So you tend to have kind of deeper beams that are, can be 600 to 500 millimetres deep, and you set them up, and, and they can span quite far distances. So you're going from 12 metres to f- about 15 metres, and you create these big open spaces. And steel is the ideal material for that because, as we discussed, the steel beams can take a lot of tension in, in the bottom of the beams, and you don't need as many columns. Now, on the flip side, if you were designing a, um, an apartment building or a hotel, we've naturally got walls in there, so you can have more columns. You can hide the columns in all these various walls that you've got. So the spans become shorter and concrete is better acoustic properties. So, you know, you can't hear sound transmitting from the flat above you as much. Um, you don't have as many services. So you can really thin down the thickness of the floor. And in a skyscraper, that makes a big difference, right? So that's that's how you would do, you know, an office building versus a hotel or an apartment building. Now, because the shard actually stacks these different usages up one on top of each other, the obvious thing to do would be to actually use the right material in the right place. That does bring complications in a little bit of how you're going to ma- manufacture it, how the building's going to squash down because different materials react differently. So there are some <coughs> things which are a little bit counterintuitive, but it feels like the right thing to do, and that's what we did. So we have a concrete basement, we move up to about 40 stories of steel, which is where the offices are. We then have um, a number of stories which are in concrete, which is where the hotel um, and the apartments are. And then finally you get back to steel when you get right to the top of the tower. So if any of you have been up to the viewing gallery, um, 
you can always tell who the engineers are because you won't be looking at the Thames, um, which is, by the way, full of poo. And you will instead be looking up at the steel, which is far more interesting. So, so I'm always there kind of looking up at the steel. And anyway, you can tell. So we went back to steel up there because it's exposed to the elements. You know, it gets rained on. There's wind up there um, and, and concrete oh, sorry, steel it can be quite durable in those conditions as well. So we wanted this open light structure at the top. Nice. So it's a it's a concrete, no, so it's a steel, concrete, steel sandwich. Yeah. In the sky. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and in your book, you describe the process of getting in a tiny little elevator on the outside of the building before it's finished and going and all the inclined. way... Yeah, it's inclined and yeah. it's all the way to the top. And like as I was reading that, I was like, I think I might be sick. Yeah. <laughs> um, I so, so I would say the only reason I got through that sort of thing on site, so I'm I'm quite bad with heights, is because I was pretty much the only woman on site at the time. And I just said, I can't be that woman that comes to site and just starts crying. And, and it was literally the fear of sexism <laughs> that made me get over it. So you have written a wonderful book called Thank Built. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and what inspired you to write it? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so Built is kind of the stories, the history, the people that are responsible for the amazing structures um, around us. And yeah, the reason I wrote it was because I could only talk to so many people about what structural engineering is and so on. And I decided, well, maybe I could reach a much larger audience, potentially. I mean, maybe only two people would buy my book and then it wouldn't be so good. Um, but but that was the idea. And, and actually, I managed to get into so much more depth by doing research for the book than I ever managed to with my talk. So the history, you know, these stories about Bessemer and Monnier and so on, I didn't know about those things. We're not taught that stuff at university. We're just taught second partial order differential equations. <laughs> they don't teach us who the people are. Yeah. And so I really, really enjoyed um, learning about these characters. And they were, they were all really interesting um, characters. And I love learning about the history, about hearing how the Romans were doing all these techniques, you know, thousands of years before other people. Um yeah, so it, it, it was a real labour of love and I really enjoyed writing it for, for most of the part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have some to sell at the back as well. We do have some to sell at the back yeah. um, and I take credit card. <laughs> Amex as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the book is fantastic. Like, it's such a lovely... You do really make characters out of these what might otherwise be, like, quite dry, just names. You really kind of feel like you know the people that you're reading about and I also really oh, like you. you kind of bring in like bits of feminism and like <laughs> um like your experiences of all the places that you've lived around the world and it's just yeah having spent some time with you I felt like it's the book is really you as well which is really <laughs> lovely oh thank you very much yeah um so if people want to see and hear more from you they can obviously buy the book yeah um are you online can people look you up yep so I'm on twitter and instagram at Roma the engineer and this was because my husband used to call me Bob the Builder. Um, he still tries to take credit for the whole Roma the Engineer thing. And I'm like, no, nah, you can't. I can blame you for it. But anyway, so yeah, Roma the Engineer. So my website, my Twitter and my Instagram um, are all that. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on Real Talk. Thanks for having me.
So that was the brilliant Roma Agrawal. Thanks so much to her for coming on the show. Thanks too to Ian Bokert for masterminding the sound recording and to Rachel Wheely for her support on the night. If you thought this sounded like a lot of fun and you fancy being in a Real Talk audience yourself, then as luck would have it, we're going to be recording another live episode in Birmingham on the 21st of February. I'm going to be in conversation with archaeologist Coralie Atchison about iron, and you can find all the details about that on the Real Talk website, and that's at www.realtalk.com. In the meantime, we'll be back with another episode in two weeks, so until then, take care of yourselves and see you next time on Real Talk. So, so we have a bag full of raisins. There's three, <laughs> there's, there's three carrots which I haven't touched, and a bag of Maltesers, so and a hundred Maltesers that have been touched. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers, and if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.